If uh, you have your Bibles, you might open to uh, the Gospel of Luke, and we're in chapter 3. If you don't, um, open your uh, handout. There's a handout. You want to get that. Uh, so this is, I know, I know, this is the weekend you've all been waiting for, right? 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 Because we're going through the genealogy tonight, and that's what, <laughs> every, every, it's everyone's favorite passage of Scripture. So here's the deal. I, I tried to figure out, like, how am I going to, how am I going to do this? You can see I printed our, our text in um, your handout tonight. You might want to look at that. I had to make it really small so I could fit it all in. So then I was like trying to figure out like, okay, how are we going to do this? Like, should I read it? Like I could read the whole thing and I could, I could read it. It takes me about eight minutes to read it because I can't do it without making comments about certain names and stuff like that. So I can't, I'm like, I shouldn't do that. Then I thought, well, I could trick one of the other pastors into reading it. I, on Monday, I tried it. I texted Pastor Bill just out of the blue. And I said, hey, you know, I thought it'd be really good to have a scripture reading this weekend. Would you be available? And he wrote back, no. Actually, what he wrote back was, he actually wrote, that's a no. But, uh, and then I thought we could do responsive reading. Like, how cool would that be? All right, here's how it worked. Take out your notes. Get your notes. Look at them. Okay. Here's how we do responsive reading. I would begin. Here's my part. I would read. Look at your notes. I would read Jesus. You guys done responsive readings? Okay. So I read a part. Then I look at you and you read. Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son, as was supposed, of? Good. The son of? Oh boy. Uh, <laughs> see, and right there it goes south. So I was like, yeah, it's not going to work. And then I thought, oh, I'll find a really cool video, right? Like, you know, and there's a couple of websites that, uh, where, where people make videos for pastors to use in sermons. There's one website I went to. They have over 10,000 videos, 10,000 videos to go along with sermons. They had one video, one, one. And I actually, uh, my suspicion is it's probably only been downloaded like three times. And I felt really bad for him. So this is, so I'm going to show it, right? Here you go. And by the way, this guy, this guy cheats. Okay. Just watch what he does. So there you have it in a minute and a half. Uh, here, okay, 76 names, all right? Um, half of which, about half of which you will not find anywhere else in Scripture. This is it. The only place. So if you're like, some of those names look kind of, you know, odd to me. It's because you're not going to see them anywhere else. And a lot of them are just like, you, you know, you can't pronounce. You don't want to pronounce. Um, but the Bible says that all of Scripture is inspired. That all scripture is given to us for a reason. Now, I'll tell you, there's got to be a reason for God giving us the genealogies. Now, that being said, this ain't no Romans 8, okay? It's like, I'm just saying it hasn't inspired a lot of sermons. Um, I don't know any worship songs that are based um, on this. Um, you know, when you're doing your through the Bible in a year and you get to the, no one gets to the genealogy and goes, yay, the genealogy, right? You're like, oh, what, what'd you do for devotions today? I had to get through the genealogy, right? Like, you can't read a devotion. There's no devotional books written on the genealogies. And yet, and yet, the genealogies are there for a reason. Why are there genealogies in the Bible? So just, 
in, in general, let me just give you a couple things to keep in mind. This is in your notes. The first is this. God gives us genealogies because they help anchor the gospel to human history. Now, we've talked a lot about this. Remember, Luke's a researcher. Luke knows that for, for many, many years, people are going to read this gospel that he's written. And he wants us to know that it's not a fable. It's not a fairy tale. It's actually rooted in human history. So, um, you know, he wants us to understand. He's going to give us some names, and we'll, we'll, with those names, we'll anchor it to places. Now, life was very different 2,000 years ago um, when Jesus was around. Um, in those days, and, and for, you know, human history before that, you basically, you lived on a piece of land that your ancestors lived on. And you, your parents would have lived there, your grandparents, your great-grandparents, and so on. And oftentimes, because people were anchored to, um, to the ground, if you will, to the, to the earth, they, they, would, they wouldn't build fences like people build today. Like I have a fence in my backyard. It's just a, it's, it's two by fours and four by fours and, you know, all that. Like when I move, I'm not taking it with me. But back then, you know, when you built it, if you could see this, this is actually a picture in, in um, Judea. And when they would build walls, they would build rock walls, right? And, and those walls were your property boundaries. And, and they put them there to stay. When you put up a boundary around your property, it was, it, what that meant was that, that boundary ain't going nowhere and you're not going anywhere. Um, you were there. It, it would be expected that your kids would live in, that, in those same boundaries, that your grandkids would live there. And families kind of stuck to the land and they stuck close to each other. Um, even vocationally, like if, if your father was a farmer, you were probably a farmer. If he was a furniture maker, you were probably a furniture maker. And that's the way that they did life. We've told you this before. But life back then was about we, not me. See, today life's about me. But back then it was about, it was about we. It was about us. If you were going to make a decision about where to live, that was a we decision right? A whole bunch of people made it with you. If you were going to take a job, that was a we decision. If you were going to get married, that was a we decision. Um, if you were going to make some kind of change in your life. But sometimes throughout history, even though people were anchored to family and stayed close to family and stayed close to the, to the, to the boundaries, to the property, at certain times people would be displaced. Sometimes it was because of war, War might displace you or your family. Sometimes it was famine. Um, you'd, have to, you'd have to move to somewhere where there was food. Sometimes it was urbanization. The, the jobs were all in the city, so you'd move there. Sometimes it was educational opportunities. Sometimes the fracturing of the family would mean that you would be displaced. And not every dislocation of a family was even necessarily bad. Um, you might remember there was a guy named Abraham, married to Sarah. God comes along and says, I want you to pack up your bags. I want you to hit the road, go to a new land, you know, where you'll build a new fence. And God says, I'll, I'll, I'll give you a new family and a new legacy and a new lineage because of, of your faith. Now, unfortunately, t today, we live in a world where families are often scattered, not true. We're often just all, all over the place. Uh, most people today say they lack a sense of rootedness um, to people and, and to places. A lot of times you'll hear people say things like, I, I don't really know who I am. Um, I don't really know what my identity is or, or who my people are or where they come from. And I think that's probably one of the reasons why there's a real renewed interest today in people figuring out their genealogies. You can go online and, right, you can find Ancestry.com and there's tons of these places where you can go and you can start to figure out your family tree because increasingly people want to know. I feel disconnected. I don't know where my family is from. I want to know that. It's just part of who we are. 
I was thinking about this. I, I didn't grow I didn't grow up in the Northwest. I, uh, maybe like some of you, I grew up in Southern California in Orange County um, when I got through high school. And I kind of grew up always thinking I would live there. Um, got out of high school. God moved me to Arizona to go to college. Um, it wasn't that far. It was only about six hours the way I drive uh, to get to uh, where <laughs> I went to college. I was there. And then um, I kind of always thought I would go back to Southern California, and, and instead, God moved me up to um, the Portland area to go to Western Seminary. While I was here, Christy and I got married. Um, her family, as all of her brothers and sisters, her family, they all live in the Portland, Milwaukee area, and so um, we just really got connected and thought, you know, I thought we'll live with her family, we'll live around here. I love the fact that my kids are very, very connected um, with all their relatives on their mom's side. Um, and every now and then, though, I would think, you know, my kids don't know anything about my side of the family. They don't know anything about their dad. And so we'll take trips to Southern California. And, you know, sometimes we'll go down there and I'll, I'll drive them and be like, you know, here's the house I grew up in, right? <laughs> They're, wow. That's, you know, but I want them to know, like, you know, this is where your dad grew up. You know, I'll take them to the beach. I would always ditch school for, you know, here's where I went to. Here's where I went to. You know, here's my favorite restaurant. I always take them whenever we go into town to El Cholo's restaurant and, you know, that kind of stuff. Because I want them to have this connectedness to know um, where they came from and um, where their genealogy lies. And loose genealogy kind of does this for us. It, it, it connects us with people and places as we look at Jesus and go backwards. So this is one of the things it does. It, it kind of anchor, anchors us in human history. There's a second thing, though, that a genealogy in general does in the Bible, and that is it shows us how God works generationally. Um, Luke's genealogy reminds us that God's plans, and this is so important, that God's plans are not simply limited to me, right here and right now in my lifetime. I mean, how often do we feel, I mean, think about it. How often when you think of God, do you think, here's when I was born and here's when I died, the bookends, and they're the only ones that matter. I don't care what God did back then or what he will do. The only thing I really care about is what he does between these bookends. And for a lot of us, that's, that's the only thing we think about when we think about life. We just think about us. And, and, and a genealogy does this. It kind of pulls us back, right? And we start to look at a whole bunch of generations. And we start to realize some things like, um, it's, it's about me, but it's not just about me, right? It's what God's doing is bigger than you. It's bigger than me. It's in, in our lifetime, which for us seems so big, as you pull back in a genealogy, it gets more and more and more compressed. And what you begin to notice is this, and this is powerful, that the, the same God who was faithful to Noah, that the same God who was faithful to Abraham and, and to David has been faithful to you. I think about, I thought about this this week and how powerful that is because I look at, I look at people in the past and I see how God worked in their life and I appreciate that. I look in my own life and I see how God has worked in my life and, and that means a lot to me. But here's where it really becomes important to me as a parent. I look at my kids and I, I tell them my wife today, I said, you know what, when I think about my own life, I, I tend to think, well, you know, God loves me. I love God. I'm good. I'm okay. I'm, I feel safe in God's arms. But I worry about my kids sometimes, you know, and maybe about my grandkids because we live in a messed up world, don't we? I mean, it's, and if you have kids, you, 
do you ever, are you ever kind of concerned about your kids and the world they're growing up in and what it will be like for them to follow Jesus and what, what it might cost them and what life might be like? And it's, for me as a parent, it's comforting because I remember the same God who took care of David and the same God who took care of Abraham and the same God who's taking care of me will be there for my, for my kids. God works generationally. Here's a third thing. It also highlights the, the value of legacy. Now, here's what I mean by that. Now, Luke gives us 76 names. And about half of those names we find in the Bible to varying degrees. For some of these people, we get a sentence. For some of them, we get entire chapters of the Bible. And then the other half are never, ever mentioned anywhere else in Scripture. So we don't know anything about them. Now, human reasoning will kind of do this. Um, the, the, when we go through a genealogies, a genealogy and we look at people who did big things, when we look at the Davids and the, and the Abrahams, we often think about them in terms of their contribution to human history. But then when we, but then when we think about the people who like, are mentioned, but we don't know anything about them, Sometimes it's easy to think, well, they were just lucky to be in there at all, right? Like they're not as significant as David or, or, or as Abraham. But in this list, we discover that there's power just in, in legacy, right? Just in people who, if they didn't do anything else, they carried on the line of faith from one generation to the next. Uh, some of these guys didn't build the ark, but they parented the guy who built the ark. Or they didn't slay a giant, but they parented, they raised up a young man who slayed a giant or ruled a kingdom, passed on faith. And the question that we would wrestle with is this, who's more significant, the person who slayed the giant or the person who raised up a young man with the faith to slay a giant? And I think we'd probably say, well, obviously, neither one is more important than the other. The important thing is they do what God called them to do. But I say that because sometimes we need to readjust our thinking. How often have you ever thought to yourself, well, I'm no David, I'm, I'm no Abraham, I'm no so-and-so, I'm not, I'm a star of the faith, right? And yet God would come and challenge you and say, but do you love me? Do, do, do you care about me? Are you, are you raising up children the best that you can to carry on the legacy of faith? That, that's an important thing in itself. And as parents, I think it's also important for us to not presume God's will on our children. I mean, one of the things that challenged me when I read this was, I think it's easy as parents to raise children and for us to think we know what their life will look like if they're successful. I mean, it's easy for us to say, I, we all want our sons and daughters to be successful, but sometimes we get these pictures like this, this is what it's going to be. Isn't it possible that God will come along and say, actually, my idea of success for your child is they will be a name without any other description. That's all, a name, someone who carries on the faith. So I think as, par as parents, we need to be careful not to presume God's will on our children and what success is. Well, just a couple of things for genealogies in general. And then Let's think about gospel genealogies for a minute. We'll get a little more specific and, and narrow this down. Now, we know that there are four gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and... Thank you. All right. So, and each one of these gospels is a, is a biographical sketch of the life of Jesus Christ. And each one has a, has a slightly different emphasis, um, but each one is true. And oftentimes, they'll give us different details to, to different stories. Now, 
I've, we've kind of talked about this when we started the series, but uh, let's just do this again because it, it relates to what we're talking about here with genealogies. Now, there's a gospel of Mark. I'm not presenting these in the order here that they were written in, but there's the gospel of Mark. Mark was written to a Roman audience, to Romans. Now, Romans didn't care about your genealogy. They didn't care about where you came from or any of that. Um, they only cared about power and prestige. So Mark doesn't give them a genealogy because they wouldn't care. It wouldn't mean anything to them. John is writing to Greeks, the Greeks of his day. Again, they don't care about genealogies. They're into philosophy, right? So they don't, genealogy means nothing. Although, I'll just an interesting thing to do is sometime on your own, go back to, to John chapter one and ask yourself, if I, was a, if I was into philosophy and you're reading John chapter one, I think actually there is a genealogy there for philosophers. Very, very intriguing. In the beginning was the word, you can read it and uh, that'll blow your mind, but do that later, okay? And then uh, Mark, John, now let's think about Matthew for a minute. Now Matthew's writing to a Jewish audience. Now his, his Jewish audience they're only going to care, uh, care about one thing when it comes to Jesus. Was Jesus, the, was he the fulfillment of the promise that God made to Abraham? It's all they care about. So if they want to see a genealogy that traces Jesus back to Abraham. It's all they care about. And that's what they get in the Gospel of Matthew. Now, in the Gospel of Luke, Luke isn't writing to um, Jews. He's writing to non-Jews. He's writing to Gentiles, people like us. And, and we tend to be less concerned about Jesus' connection to Abraham. We're going to ask questions more like, was he really God? And was he really man? And Luke's genealogy is going to take us there. Different purpose. So now a lot of people like to take Luke's genealogy and Matthew's genealogy, and they like to compare them. And what they'll notice is there's some differences. There's some similarities, but some differences between the two. Now, why is that? Well, again, part of it has to do with who they're being written to. Um, without going into a lot of detail, though, let me just kind of, so here's, <laughs> all right, so this isn't to scale. All right, obviously, uh, so we have Jesus and Abraham and Adam. Abraham, we move way back towards Adam. But uh, for my purposes, let me just kind of give you this now. Here's how we can compare a little bit uh, Matthew, who gives us a genealogy, and Luke, who gives us a genealogy. Now, what Matthew does is he starts with Abraham, and he's going to go forward in time to Jesus. All right. Now, now what Luke's going to do is he's going to start with Jesus and work his way backward. All right. So that's what he's going to do. Now, what Matthew does is he's only going to go as far back as Abraham. Why? Because he's writing to Jews and it's all they really care about. Is Jesus related? Is he the promise of the fulfillment of the covenant that God made with, with Abraham? Luke, on the other hand, is going to take us all the way back to Adam in fact, he'll take us back to God, but he's going to take us back to Adam for a reason, because what he wants to show us is that Jesus came for everyone, not just the Jews, for everyone, that the gospel is universal. So now, scholars, and if you've done some reading, you know, there's some debates about uh, theories about why are the genealogies different in Matthew and Luke, and I don't want to really get into all that, except to say this. Some say, well, part of the reason is because they're not comprehensive genealogies, either one of them, that's certainly the case. Um, one is biological, one is legal. You might read that. I'm not going to get into all the details, but it's another possibility. Men who are far more intelligent than me um, will camp there, and, and they may be right. But I think one of the obvious ones here is this. Matthew is going to give us Joseph's family tree, and Luke is going to give us Mary's family tree, which is really unusual because they didn't trace usually your genealogy back through your mother. We'll talk about why that is in a minute. So Luke's genealogy 
kind of begins this way. In chapter three, verse 23, Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son, as was supposed, of, of Joseph. So a couple of things he's going to reveal to us right off the top in this genealogy that grips us, right? Uh, the first is this, that Jesus was adopted. Now I'm using that term loosely, but this is very important. Jesus was adopted, if you will. And we get this idea, again, notice Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son, notice here, as was supposed of Joseph. Now, most people during the life of Jesus would only have known him as the son of Joseph. They didn't know the backstory. They didn't know about the angel appearing. They didn't know about the virgin birth. They didn't know, and most of them didn't care. But the reality is, Jesus didn't have an earthly father. This is important. His mother was a virgin when he, when he was born, right? We've, we've talked about that. Spent two months basically talking about that. Which me, what it means is this. Jesus was genetically only related to Mary, not to Joseph, right? So in other words, Joseph, and it wasn't kind of a, you know, it wasn't a legal thing. They didn't go to court. But Joseph basically, when Jesus was born, looked at this, this baby boy and had to say, he's not my kid. Right? He's not mine, but I'm going to raise him. So really responsibly, he, he adopts Jesus as a son. Now, theologically, this is very important because what the Bible teaches us is all the way back to Adam and Eve, that sin is passed down from the father to the children. Sin is not passed down through the mother. It's passed down through the father, to which all the mothers say, I knew it, right? Like, so when your kids sin, you really can look at your husband and say, this is your fault, okay? So that's technically how it works. It's passed down through the father. So if Jesus doesn't have an earthly biological genetic father, that means that he is born without sin. Jesus is adopted. Here's the second thing. Jesus was 30. I hardly remember my 30s, but you know, Jesus was 30 when, when uh, he began ministry. Now, this is actually a pretty significant age in those days. 30 was the kind of the customary age for Jewish men who were gonna be involved in ministry to get started. If you were a priest, if you were a Levite in those days, you began service at the age of 30. And you can look back in the Old Testament. Ezekiel began his prophetic ministry at 30. Joseph began, uh, he became prime minister of Egypt at 30. David began his political career at 30. Even John the baptizer started his ministry at 30. Now the question you might ask is, okay, so what was Jesus doing for 30 years, right? Like you come home and Jesus, what have you been doing? You know, like for 30 years. Well, we know that he lived in a body like ours, which means uh, he had to grow up physically, he had to grow and he had to mature. He had to learn how to walk and talk and read and write and teach. We, we know he was a carpenter for a while. We know he had to go through training, become a rabbi. But I think even more than that, Jesus was just living among us he was living a righteous life for us. Um, and, and I think there's also a message that he's trying to send to us here. Like if, if Jesus is going to wait till he's 30, what would, that, what would that mean for us? And I, at least for me, I'm like, well, that's pretty, that's pretty obvious. I was thinking back in my own life, like I really began ministry, if you will, like 
Serving in the local church when I was about 16 years old is when I began leading worship, um, first with youth in my local church, and then I started leading worship um, in the worship services. And um, I started, uh, I think about 18, teaching Bible studies and uh, became a youth intern for a while, went to Bible college. Uh, in my 20s, I was a youth pastor at a couple different churches. Uh, I was so... And I was talking to my wife about this and I, I made the statement. I said, you know, when I look back on my years as a youth pastor in several different churches in my 20s, I am filled with awe and fear. And my wife just shook her head like she knew exactly what I was talking about. Because I'll tell you, as a youth pastor in my 20s, I always meant well. I mean, I, I loved God and I meant well, but I was immature Right? I mean, there's just, there's some wisdom that only comes by living for a while and, and, and experiencing things. And I was immature. I was inexperienced. I was naive. I, I, but I loved God. I wanted to make a difference. But I just, I mean, I was young. And, and I was thinking, um, I thinking of all, all the things I did in my 20s as a youth pastor where God was just had to be up in heaven going, I love him, but I'm not sure what to do with him, you know, how God would step in and protect me and allow me to, like, I've told you this before, but I, to me, one of the classic stories is I just remember one year, um, Christmas time was coming, and I know some of you heard this, but Christmas time's coming, and I'm just like, you know, I'm this, I'm, I'm in my 20s, I want to, I want to come up with an interesting way to teach the birth of Jesus like it's never been done before, right, and I can do, I'm going to come up with something no one's ever done, and I remember thinking like, the whole purpose of the, of the Christmas story is Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. And I remember seeing a nativity scene and I'm like, there's the wise men, which shouldn't be there in the first place. And there's like the, the shepherds and there's Mary and there's Joseph and there's Jesus. And I remember like thinking only Jesus really should, should be there when you think about it. He's the purpose of Christmas. So I came up with this brilliant plan. And so I went down and I got a, a nativity scene, big, big pieces and all made out of paper mache, didn't cost a lot of money. And I was teaching Sunday school. So I just remember like the room is packed and all the, and, and I remember like all the adults, all my staff were sitting in the back. And, and so I'm, I started by preaching about the wise men. I'm like, you know, talking about the wise men and who they were. And then I'm like, you know, the wise men weren't even there. That, you understand, right? They weren't even there at this, at the manger scene. And so, and we can get so distracted. So I, I, I so I pulled out a hammer and I started smash, I just started banging on the wise men. They were paper mache. I remember hitting the head of the first one and his head stuck to the hammer and I, I couldn't get it off. There was a lady in the back passing out, you know, as it was happening. Like people were horrified. You could still ask people who were there. They'll still tell you they can remember when that happened. They're still in therapy like for that. But I, I remember afterwards somebody going, have you lost your mind, you know? And I remember like going, no, this is the coolest thing ever, right? I was in my 20s. I didn't, I didn't know anything. Jesus didn't start his ministry till 30. One of the greatest gifts God ever gave Gateway is he didn't bring me here till I was 32. It was just like, I mean, like, so here's my point. Like, don't rush, don't rush, don't rush the work of God in your life. All right, here's the third thing. Jesus joined a messed up family. Okay, so let's sing. We're gonna get a little picture of Jesus' family. Here's what, here's how one scholar put it. Pure and simple. The genealogy of Jesus is a series, series of people who were sinners and died. That's it. That's like Jesus' family tree. Well, let's think about some of the people in Jesus' family tree. Terah, who was an idolater. Abraham, who was an adulterer, who was a liar, who was a weasel, who on two occasions gave his wife 
his wife to another man so he could protect his own skin, right? Jacob, who was a liar, was a thief. Judah, who traded slaves and enjoyed prostitutes. David, who was an adulterer and pregnated a woman he wasn't married to and then had her husband killed. And these are the people. Now, these are the people in our family trees we try to hide, right? We don't want to tell anybody about these people. In Jesus, it's just like right out, this is Jesus' family tree. They were, they were messed up. There were people in his family tree who were greedy, shady, had messed up kids, had dysfunctional marriages, had poor decision-making skills. And here's the good news. Jesus dove right into that because that stuff has never scared him, right? I mean, and this, is, this is good news because Jesus loves our messed up families. Our messed up families do not scare Jesus. And I don't know if you've ever felt like, oh, I'm part of this family and it's so messed up and you know, how can God do it or can God use me? You understand God is bigger than your messed up family. God is bigger than our failures. He can save us out of that stuff. He can, he can change us. He can transform us, transform our families. This is, what, this is what Jesus does. Never give up on what he can do. Never give up and go, well, my family's so messed up, I'll never amount to it. Don't do Jesus loves our messed up families. He, he had one of his own, right? Thank God. Thank God for that. And here's a fourth one. It shows us about God's covenantal love to us. I'm going to talk about this for a minute. So what I mean is this. God loves every generation, right? Not just some. God is involved in every generation of human history. God is faithful. This is so important. He's faithful to every generation. Even the messed up generations that go off the rails, even the generations that are undeserving, which is every generation, God remains faithful when generations do not. God raises up people of faith in every generation, even when that generation is messed up. God will raise up people who will pass on the faith and bless the next generation. This is the work of God from generation to generation to generation. And it should give us hope. We look and say, the world is so dark. The days are so, so evil. God says, I know, but I'm bigger than that. Don't be afraid for your generation. Don't be afraid for your kids. God says, I could do great things. Now, there's a theological term that we use. It's the term covenant. A covenant is when God makes, enters into an agreement or some would say a contract with, with an individual or with people. Well, some of these contracts uh, or, or covenants that God makes are conditional. Sometimes God says, if, if you do this, then I will do this. But more often, God's, God's covenants are unconditional, where God says, I'm going to be faithful to people regardless of what they do. And there's a word, and, and we've talked about this, and you've probably heard this before, but there's a, a word in the Old Testament that scholars like to use to describe this, this covenant um, aspect of God, the, the love of God. It's the word hesed. And it describes God's covenantal faithfulness. One scholar de defines hesed this way. It's God's unstoppable love for undeserving people. His unstoppable love no matter what you do, no matter what we do, no matter what our generation does, it's the unstoppable, all-searching, all-seeking, always-saving love of God for undeserving people, which is all of us, it's every generation. And Luke's genealogy reveals for us that, that 
God loves and pursues us. And he does it not because we're good. He does it because he's good. That's God. It's kind of like, it to, to, I know to a lesser degree, but it, it reminds me, it's a little bit like the relationship that I have with my kids. See, I, I loved each one of my children before they were born. When our firstborn came along, I loved him before he was born. It was an unconditional love. My love for him wasn't, he, he didn't do anything to earn my love. He hadn't, you know, he hadn't, uh, he hadn't washed the car yet. He hadn't, you know, he hadn't put away the dishes yet. Uh, he hadn't achieved a great GPA yet. He didn't do any of that stuff. Nothing, nothing. And yet I chose to love him. I chose to care for him. I chose to provide for him. Sometimes, you know, people ask, but what if, what if one of your children decides to wander? decides to rebel, to which I would reply, my love for my children is unconditional. It, my love for them isn't based on what they do to me. It's on a commitment that I've made to them. I will still love my kids. I will still pursue my kids. Why? Because that's how God loves me. That's how God has pursued me. That's how God has forgiven me through Jesus Christ. That's the, the Hesed love of God the covenantal love of God for us. And Luke's genealogy reminds us of some of the ways God's covenantal love has been manifested through human history. So, you know, we went through all 76 names and you'll notice in the, even in the video, a few names kind of got to be on the screen in big letters for a minute. And there's a reason for that. If we go back a ways, we can go back to a guy there uh, named, named David. And we think about the Davidic covenant. David lived about a thousand years before Jesus was born, right? And, and we, know how, we know the story like there was this young shepherd boy and, and uh, God came to the shepherd boy. His name was David. He was like a no one from nowhere. And God came to him. In the middle of all these generations, God picks this young man. And, and God says, I'm gonna make this young man the king of Israel. And he's going to be a giant slayer. This is what God deci decides he will do. God will make him the king of Israel. And, and eventually David is the king of Israel. Why? Because God decreed it. And so now he's the king of Israel, but he only rules as king for a season, right? Because that's all any of us do in our life. We live for a season and we're gone. And while David is ruling for a season, God makes a promise. And God says, David, you know, you, you've come and you're gonna, you're gonna go. There's gonna be time when you're gone, you're off this earth. But God made a promise to him. God said that through David would come a descendant who would be a king who would rule for eternity, rule eternally. He wouldn't rule for a season. He would rule God's kingdom forever. He would be the king of kings. We know him as Jesus. And so God makes his covenant. I'm going to, I'm going to bring a king through your line. Now, understand, David, David wasn't perfect after God made this agreement. David sinned. David blew it. David committed adultery. David committed murder. And yet, God was faithful even when David was not. And Luke shows us that Jesus came as a fulfillment of the promise that God makes to David. All those years before that promise that God had made. Because God always, always keeps his promises. And then he goes back even farther. He's like, you know, we'll go back a thousand years to David. Let's go back even farther. And he takes us back to a guy named Abraham. Now, Abraham lives about a, a thousand years before that, before David. And, and here's what we know a little bit about Abraham or, or Abram, as we know at this point in the story. He, Abram is from a pagan family tree. 
He's, uh, he's not a worshiper of God, nor is his family. He's married to a woman named Sarah. They don't have any kids. They're just going through life. And in Genesis 12, it says God comes to Abraham, comes to Abram, and he, he speaks to him, and he says this, I want you to leave your country. I want you to leave your people. I want you to leave your father's household. And I want you to go to a land that I will show you. And, and I will make you a great nation. And I will bless you. And I will make your name a great name. This man who nobody knows and nobody cares about, who has no children, God says, I'm going to make you a great name and you will be a blessing. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. So God comes and makes a promise to this, to this man, to Abraham, who's not a perfect man by any means. He says, I know you don't have any kids and descendants, but I'm going to give you descendants. And there are going to be so many of them. They will constitute a great and powerful and godly nation and the entire earth will be blessed because of this. He makes his promise to a man who has no kids and his wife is barren. And he has to decide, will he believe God or won't he? And here's how he'll demonstrate it. He'll have a garage sale. He'll sell everything he can't pack up. And then he'll hit the road. And if you know the story, when, he, when, it, when they, they have the garage sale, they have the estate sale, sell everything they can. And then he tells God, God, wait, which direction do I go? And God's like, just pack up, hit the road, and I'll tell you as you go, right? Wouldn't that be? Well, which way? He's telling his wife, we've got to move. Where are we moving to? I don't know. Which direction? I don't know. God says he'll tell us, right? And this is the, this is the decision. So by faith, by faith, he hits the road. Now, it's not to say that he's perfect. He still, he still sins. He has an adulterous relationship. Ultimately, God gives him a son, and that son does become a great nation, we know, as Israel. But, and, and, and out of that nation comes a Savior, Jesus Christ, God's blessing to all the nations of the earth, all the nations, not just the Jews, but all the nations. In Galatians, this is what Paul tells us. Know then that it is those of faith. Paul's talking, he says, you know, there's a lot of people that will tell you you're related to Abraham if you're a Jew. Paul says, no, that was never God's intention. It's a spiritual thing. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham, right? Those who believe in God. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles, that's us, by faith, make us right with God by faith, preach the gospel, this is awesome, preach the gospel before and to Abraham. So is this gospel that God began to give all the way back. In fact, we know all the way back in Genesis 3, the gospel began to be preached, but he preaches it to Abraham as well, saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of, notice, of faith, those who believe and trust God are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. So Abraham believes in God, and that is what makes him right with God. It's his belief it's his, his faith in God. And Jesus is the fulfillment of his promise. And today when we trust in Jesus, we receive that blessing that Abraham was promised. Well, actually, Luke takes us back even farther. He takes us to a guy named Noah, right? You've heard of this guy? And God makes a covenant with Noah. Now, Noah, and we're told back in Genesis 6, lives during a time when mankind has reached a low point, right? I know we think that's now, but this was really low. It says that people were continually wicked. That's all they did, and it broke the heart of God. So God decided, I'm going to clean up this mess, right? And so he sends a flood. That's how bad it is. He's like, I'm just going to hose this place down. So he's going to send a flood, but there was a guy named Noah who found favor. That word favor is the word grace. So God decides to extend grace to this man. It was an undeserved loving 
affection. It was the Hesed love, the undeserving love of God. Not because Noah was a great man. In fact, Noah was a sinner. And even after the whole great story, building the ark and the flood, he's still going to blow it. He's still going to sin. He's going to get drunk, pass out naked in his tent. He didn't want to be there. It's ugly. But God decides, I'm going to love this guy. I'm going to bless this guy. Not because he's good, but because I'm good, God says. And so Noah, we're told for about 100 years, he's preaching to people, preaching righteousness. No one repents. He and his sons build an ark by faith, by faith, because there's never been a flood, right? God's like, all this water's going to come. I, what does that look like, God? I've never seen a flood. Oh, just trust me on this one, right? They build an ark. They build an ark. They get inside. God shuts the door. A flood comes. All humanity is destroyed except for Noah and his family. And then you, the water subsides and the land appears and the, they exit the ark and there's a new start for humanity. And God makes this promise, this covenant with Noah. In Genesis 9, he says, Behold, I establish my covenant, right? There's my promise with you and your offspring after you. That includes us. That never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. In other words, what he says is in the future, when generations go off the rail and, and we sin, God will be patient. Instead of sending us a flood, he will send us a rainbow. Much better deal, okay? Uh, send us a rainbow to remind us of God's grace, of God's love, of God's care. And ultimately, he will send us a savior. Jesus becomes our ark, if you will, in which we are saved. And then he does this, and this is great. He's been going back through all these generations, and then here's where Luke takes us. He goes back to Adam. Now, this is awesome. This is where it gets really good. He takes us to Adam, and uh, he, talks about, he talks about this. He says, you know, the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, and then he does something no one has ever done before, the son of who? God. Okay, so two big points he wants to make here. Jesus is the son of Adam. It's the first point. Jesus had a physical body like Adam. He was born into the human race like Adam, but without the sin of Adam, all right? That's important, like the Adam before the sin. Uh, and everyone who came after Adam were born with the infection of sin, if you will, born spiritually dead, but not Jesus. Right? Jesus doesn't come into the world that way. He has a body like ours. He's we said this last week, he's fully human, 100% human, but he's 100% God. He's 200% and 100%, I don't know, but that's what he is. Not half and half, not intermingled, fully God, fully man, put in one. You're like, I don't get it. Don't worry. We're going to take two years to talk about this and you still won't get it, but at least you'll have tried, right? So it says, notice, not only does he say he's the son of Adam, notice he says, the son of God. Now here's what's interesting. No other, and, and you have to understand, there are a lot of Jewish genealogies that you can see. And many that were written back in those days, they would have genealogies in every town that you would go to because those would be used as legal records to know who owned what property. There is no other known Jewish genealogy that includes the name of God. But we know this is the only one, the only one that goes all the way back to God because Luke is making a unique point. He doesn't want us to miss it. Jesus is God's unique son, unlike no one else who has ever come before or after. He is fully man, related to Adam, fully God, two in one, 
in these natures. Fully God, making a unique point here. We can go forward into the New Testament and we can, we can find this. What the Bible tells us in the New Testament is this. There are really only two family trees. They're just two. And you belong to one or the other. The first family tree is a family tree of Adam. The second family tree is a family tree of Jesus. In 1 Corinthians 15, it tells us this. For as in Adam all, what? Die. That's a great family to belong to. So also in Christ, all shall be made two family trees. Adam is a sinner. Jesus is sinless. In Adam, we inherit guilt. In Jesus, we receive forgiveness. In Adam, there is condemnation, but in Jesus, there is salvation. In Adam, there is death, but in Jesus, there is eternal life. It goes on in 1 Corinthians 15, 45 to say this, thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last man, Adam, became a life-giving spirit. That's Jesus. The question is, which family line do you belong to? To belong to Adam's family tree, you just have to be born, right? But to belong to Jesus' family tree, you need to be born again. How do you do that? Well, this is God's plan throughout the ages that God knew about our sin. God knew about our plight. And so it was always God's plan that he would send his son, that he would send Jesus Christ to come to this earth, God and man, to live a perfect life in our place, to go to the cross, to bear our sin, the record of our dead, it says in scripture. And on that cross, he dies for our sin. He is our savior, our redeemer, our deliverer. He does for us what we could never do for ourselves. And the Bible says that when we place our faith in what Christ did, that we are born again, that we become children of God. I thought a great way for us to end tonight is, um, I'm gonna ask some of our men are gonna go back right now and they're gonna grab communion and bring that forward. And I wanna invite you, if you have made that choice, if you have placed your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, if you had trusted in what Christ has done for you, then you are part of God's family. And communion is a time when we remember what it is that Jesus has done for us. And I would invite you to join us for communion. The guys are gonna, they're gonna come forward in a minute and they're gonna hand these elements out, the cup and the bread. And if you place your faith in Christ, take one of each one of them and just hold on to them for a minute. So the guys, when they're ready, can come forward. And while they're coming forward, I wanna read something for you. This is from 1 Corinthians 11. Paul's talking about the very thing that we're about to do here, and he says this. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, so that, that wafer that you're about to take, that represents the bread that Jesus took, and notice what it says. And when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Jesus said in the future when you gather together with other Christians, whether it's a couple or a big group, take some time, pass around the plate, take a piece of bread, a wafer, hold it in your hand and remember what that represents. The body of Jesus Christ who lived in a body like ours. 
who lived a perfect life for us, who allowed that body to be nailed to a cross where he suffered and died and atoned for our sin. Paul goes on, he says this, and in the same way also he took the cup after supper saying, and notice this, this is awesome. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Jesus says, I'm going to do something for you. I'm going to give my life. I'm going to give my blood. And here's my promise to you. If you place your faith, your trust in the work that I did for you on the cross, if you will trust that Jesus Christ has done it all, paid the price, if you will stop trying to earn your way to God, if you'll stop being proud about your ability to be a good person, if you will just confess that you are a sinner, confess that Jesus Christ was God in the flesh and made atonement for your sin, if you will trust in what he has done, he will forgive you of your sin. And when he makes you a child, this promise is this, nothing will separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing can separate you from the work that Christ has done for you. When you come to Christ and the Spirit seals you, you belong to God. You say, well, I'm a, I still sin. Well, I still blow it. I still say stupid things. I still do dumb things. And God says, I know, and we're working on that through the power of the Spirit. But nothing will separate you. Nothing will separate you from the love of God because you don't get saved by your works. You get saved by grace. And you don't stay saved by works. You stay saved by grace.